0: netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com.
1: Hi, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our subject this week is The Creator, the film helmed by director Gareth Edwards. And joining Gareth in the interviews and discussions with Mike are Jay Cooper, ILM VFX supervisor, Andrew Roberts, the ILM Onset VFX supervisor, as well as animation supervisor, Michael Midlock. Now, Gareth has been a longtime friend of us here at FX Guide and at our sister site, FXPhD. And I put a link in a podcast article to our feature story on Gareth's work on Attila the Hun. That was way back in 2008. And to this day, it's still one of our most popular stories ever. And also, if you head over to fxphd.com, you can check out the first three classes of the course he created for us that he and Mike talk about at the beginning of the podcast. I think a revealing thread that goes through the podcast today is Gareth's background as a VFX artist. You know, he's one of us. And his knowledge and perspective opened up, you know, different ways of doing things, different workflows compared to many other directors, which I've really found quite interesting during their discussion. So it's quite a long podcast. So let's go ahead and cross over to Mike Seymour and the guys. So thanks for that,
0: John. And yes, we're incredibly keen to talk to uh, Gareth and the guys uh, from ILM. So let me just go around the audio room, as it were. So Gareth, starting with you, of course. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And I'll just introduce the other ILM guys in no particular order, but if I can, just in terms of my uh, screen, Jay, if you could uh, say hi and explain your role. Hello. Jay Cooper, ILM, overall visual effects supervisor. And uh, joining you is Andrew. Say hi, Andrew.
2: Hi there. Andrew Roberts, uh, ILM's on set, uh, Sue.
0: And then uh, finishing out our uh, three from ILM is Michael. How are you, Michael?
3: Hi, how are you doing? Mike Midlock, uh, one of the animation supervisors.
0: So, Gareth, I uh, I couldn't help myself. I looked up when you and I first connected. It was uh, 2008. It was 15 years and eight months ago. And uh, you'd just done Attila the Hun, um, which by the way, I still was super impressed with when I went back and looked at the notes on that. You were doing, you did 250 shots for that show at a rate of two a day. And you just gave yourself a schedule of like doing two shots a day by yourself, the whole thing it was a remarkable effort. Yeah. The trick is you just do them all really badly and, <laughs> it's, and it's achievable. <laughs> Well, you say that, but like it wasn't long after that that you did a course uh, for us at FX PhD. And I got to say, that was like, even now today, like that remarkably resonates with your attitude to visual effects. I think there's a really clear line. Obviously, you're not doing the visual effects by yourself today, but that, uh, that course is hugely popular. And uh, I, you were joking with us at Sidgraph in LA that uh, it was actually more taxing than you thought it was doing that, but we do appreciate it. Yeah, you saw it as like, I think it was, was it an hour each
4: one each tutorial so therefore yes. I think it's 10 hours work but each just to figure out like what to say for an hour was like a week's work so it was like 10 weeks solid work and I was like, cursing you by the end of it but I'm glad it's out there
0: it yeah, was no, it's great so so running the clock forward obviously uh, monsters uh, godzilla um in fact I think I'd visit you uh, when you were doing post on that um and and there's a lot of stuff in the filmmaking process that we could discuss, like your stuff with Star Wars and stuff, but I really want to focus, if we could, on the creator and a bit sort of behind the, the obvious stuff. But we, before we get too far into sort of the technical and, and ILM stuff, just in terms of setting the stage, the the film itself came obviously from your ideas. You've discussed this um, elsewhere, but there is a rumor that this was originally a Star Wars script. Is that just complete hype on the internet not heard that one no no it wasn't (laughs) because i I because the way you told about it you were you were envisaging what from a field when looking out a window on a road what it would be
4: yeah it was it was i was on so basically i'd finished I, i mean my girlfriend uh has a disagreement with me about the timeline for this but i remember it as we had just finished star wars and we were having a break and i was driving to iowa to visit her family, which from Los Angeles, like a three day road trip. And since she was just daydreaming, looking out the window and I saw, there was this beautiful field and this sort of factory, this modern factory in the middle of it. And I I, I remember the logo looking like a Japanese logo. And I just started thinking, oh, I wonder what they're doing in there. and no, And I wanted to do a robot movie next. So my brain went, oh, maybe they're building robots. And so I started fantasizing about what it'd be like to be a robot and walk outside of a factory for the first time ever and see the world and I thought oh, that was a fun little moment in a movie but I don't know what would happen after that and I threw it away and then it kind of tapped me on the shoulder and, and then another idea came and another idea came and by the time I got to her parents house a lot of the movie was kind of fleshed out um, and it fell into place really quickly which is quite rare normally it takes months to kind of land on a, a solid kind of storyline.
0: So early on Greg is involved, Greg Frazier, who ends up by the way, having a producer credit, which I thought was nice. Um, but I don't know. At some point after you've got presumably close to green, greenlit or fully greenlit, you did a. You must be greenlit. You did a location survey test that resulted in like what a. There's an eight ten minute test that I think ILM did, um, of just footage from from Asia.
4: Yeah. So we got. I mean, the the, the process in which we wanted to make this film it was very ambitious for the money that we knew we'd be able to get off the studio, and but I felt like if we did this more guerrilla, like my first film was basically five of us in a van driving around Central America, jumping out whenever we saw anything interesting and filming a scene. And I was like, if we did that kind of on steroids, then it it should be possible. And everyone can see the sense in that, but it's also a very nerve wracking thing for a studio to give you tens of millions of dollars to go off and actually do it. And so they gave us a little bit of money to do a location scout. And so we didn't tell them, but we sneaked a camera with us and it had the same lens we used on the actual film. It had this anamorphic 1970s look to it and just shot, I don't know what you'd call it, like a little short film, a little holiday video. I don't know what it is. I think it's going to be on the Blu-ray extras and all that stuff. But essentially, did this like eight minute thing, came to ILM and sort of begged them with a with a kind of begging bowl, would you please, please prove this process? and?" and do some of the VFX and basically make this eight minute thing, you know, sci-fi and essentially meaning we shot like monks walking around, anchor Wat with no data or tracking markers or anything at all, just literally the footage and was handing, handing it to them and asking them to turn it all sci-fi. And over a period of what was kind of just a couple of weeks or so they did it. And, and we showed it to the studio and they know how little money they'd given us. And so they were kind of really, really impressed. And essentially we're saying, we're going to do that, but like times, you know, 20 for the actual film. And and it's kind of, it greenlit the film for us.
0: So Jay, were you involved in that original test? I was not. John Knoll picked
5: that up. And I think we did, I want to say like 40 shots or so. A few of them actually made it into the movie, which is kind yeah, of Yeah, that's fun. a
0: gorgeous one of the motorbike, right? Where the camera yeah. comes off off the bike. You're like obviously running parallel to the bike. And uh, yeah. yeah. That one made it in there.
5: There's another one of uh, a farmer in a field, and then one of them got repurposed for the end of the movie, actually, too. Yeah. Oh, really? They
0: survived. Yeah. So, so was that a blueprint for how the VFX were going to be actually done at ILM? Because clearly, no tracking markers, no lidar surveys, no whatever.
5: I mean, as much as as much as Gareth could allow us we would take it and i'm sure andrew can speak to that more in detail but the the idea was always i remember our first call together gareth was okay so we're going to do this and we're all going to jump together and um we're going to figure it out and that was that was sort of the the compact that we made we would sort of figure it out as we went so we did let you know very small
0: amount of tracking dots on madeline
5: and on our other simulants but it was really
2: minimal
0: And Andrew, on set, presumably, you were trying to not get in the way, because I understand Gareth was doing quite long takes and stuff.
2: Uh, That's right, yeah, Uh, quite long takes. Um, I think the first one was somewhere between 22 to 25 minutes, which was uh, uh, an an adjustment. Um, But, yeah, the, the... mandate was to try and capture as much as I could while you know not getting in the way Gareth works really quickly in his team um the camera team works really really quickly where they would break down sets so I learned you know sort of from day one to jump in and um sort of have a word with them like I need to capture as much as I can before they before they move on um so although there weren't tracking markers. Um, per se or some of the traditional setup that you would have. I, I did have an iPhone-based uh, LiDAR um, scanner that I used to try and just capture the at least the, the geometry on a, in a light sense of the scene and lots of photogrammetry um, and then using any static objects as tracking markers, um, that kind of thing. So we did what we we could to to, to set the, the 3D team up for success.
0: That original panoramic uh, wide-angle uh, lens was the... Cower right. I think like you were shooting a lot of seventy-five mil. Yeah, it, was, it was all on
4: a cower seventy-five two times anamorphic. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that anamorphic um, can be a bugbear for doing tracking at the best of times, right? So, so I guess the jay the anam the the well, there's is the layup team. Is it still layout that does that first that gets? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a I would say it's a a mixed bag. So
5: normally when you're you've got an anamorphic shoot, you're you're solving dozens of lenses so we we greatly reduced the number of lenses we had to worry about we did the profiling for the lens so that was very traditional in that sense um you know we have a tried and true process for that but yeah in terms of the head tracking and the
0: body tracking it's pretty laborious to be honest so gareth you were famously able to shoot low light and talking about the beach sequence and stuff now which um you know was great and that meant you were uh flexible and and uh and i enjoyed hearing how that has been done but i was curious like when you shot that footage did you have to do a lot of like noise reduction on it or was it literally that clean coming out of the uh of the pipe i mean in the grades we did noise reduction and
4: added noise back on um i think that would be the typical process is reduce the the noise coming out of the camera but then giving it this film effect i actually really liked the grain that you inherently get at twelve thousand eight hundred iso it looks quite filmic and and when you don't have it on the i think what is it 800 i the iso the other base whatever it is that that is super clean and it looks kind of airbrushed and it it would really grate me and i'd only feel better about it once the grain was added but you guys must have um had to de-grain things or did you never bother doing that
5: now, as as part of our process, we degrain all the plates, put the CG back on into it, and then we just add the grain back in. Yeah, so we have our own sort of recipe for matching into the what what the sensor noise is effectively.
0: And at that early stage, I heard rumors of a five dollar LUT that you would somehow downloaded from somewhere for just kind of getting a look, which they had. ILM I think had to recreate or somebody had to recreate.
4: Yeah, camp. We we basically I spent the pandemic. I had far too much time on my hands, obviously, like everybody and. I bought every single in all of existence on the internet. And and then I tried to film something like the the horriblest thing I could possibly think of. So I bought a load of crayons and like a big like (laughs) two pack of crayons, put them all on a table, messed them all up, got lots of like loud T-shirts and clothing and then got my girlfriend to sit in front of it. So I had skin tones and shot this shot. And then the idea was do like a Pepsi challenge. And I applied every single LUT to that shot. And I thought if any, sh- if there's a LUT out there that can make the shot look good, then that's the one we're using. And one of them did. And, and so I played with it a little bit more and exported it as a LUT. And that was like the basis. And I, I don't know if it was $5, it might've been four or seven, but it was really <laughs> cheap. And, and that was kind of our LUT for the movie and and it would drive people crazy because it didn't work too great when it when you tried to bend it you know and they had to re, kind of reinvent that look from scratch in post to, to actually grade the movie um but yeah I mean it was trying to echo or essentially it kind of makes an oval shape out of the spectrum it's right. kind of like pushing certain colors getting reducing certain colors on the on the color palette and forcing them into a certain range so it has that kind of what you know kodak stock did back in the day all within the the, the range of skin tones and um photochem spent about like normally we were supposed to dive in on day one and just start grading the film but we just stopped and spent about four or five days just concentrating on the LUT. um it's probably worth but- more than four dollars <laughs> yeah i think it was most expensive LUT now
0: <laughs> so the look is Gorgeous. And there's this great kind of bluey, orangey thing, which uh, that beach sequence we're talking about is like super highlights that. Um, uh, And I'm going to get to like animation and stuff in a second. But while we're just touching on art direction, um, there's a great story you told SIGGRAPH about uh, also during COVID, uh, your eBay buying techniques and uh, the notion of uh, what happened if Sony rather than Apple had won the the consumer wars. Do you want to just relate that uh, anecdote? Yeah, well, we we essentially had um,
4: we had where a workshop doing all the hero props, but we we knew we had loads more props we had to do, and and the Thai crew were going to have to make those, and and our whole ethos for the aesthetic of the movie was like you know if Apple hadn't won the device that's in everyone's pocket and the Sony Walkman had, and that and so basically we we're riffing off sort of nineteen eighties and early nineties product design from Japan. Um, as like a main vocabulary for the vehicles, for the robots, for everything. And so I basically went on eBay during the pandemic and bought way too many bits of tech from the 80s and 70s and 90s and had hundreds of these things, like whether they be Discman's or Sony Watchman's or old cameras and monitors and all sorts. And, And then what happened is James Klein would I would take loads of pictures of them and we ship them to thailand and then james klein photoshopped them together basically he had would, we'd take two different objects and make make them kind of have sex with each other and merge and create a new offspring and so they would and then he would blend them all in photoshop and then find a different place to do the divide so it trick your eye and you wouldn't understand what the two objects originally were and then, and and so basically bangkok the team over there would copy those designs and like cut these objects up and smooth them out with all sorts of techniques that were down and dirty and really cheap But on camera especially with the anamorphic lens like we had you just can't tell like it they look great on camera you know they, there's you read so much detail into them that isn't actually there
0: yeah no they're great but I guess those initial tests uh that happened at that stage because those initial tests had the characteristic simulant type head that for want of a better term, I'm going to say it looks like an old video projector, but it's like not not the gorgeous stuff that um, that Alfie exhibits in terms of the full face and neck. But it, was that all done by that stage by James, or was that still in development? We saved
4: a lot of the actual design of the robots to post production. Um, we kind of like we ended up in a situation where I think we had seven heads, right? Is that right? Yeah, about that. Yeah, and so so we had like we felt like we could live with the same body on every robot. Like if we just got a generic body, that would be good enough. That would work. But we, every, you know, obviously your eye goes to the head every time. And so it was like, if we could get seven or however many different heads in there, then that would be fantastic. And so we, we based, we tried all kinds of little tricks to try and come up with new robot heads. And some of them were things like taking insect heads, like a prey Mantis or something. And then imagining that Sony, had made a product, you know, of a praying mantis head. And so like kind of turning it into more product design and then doing the opposite and taking products like, like uh, home cinema projectors and then trying to anthropomorphize them and give them a bit of character, make them asymmetrical. And, and it was really interesting because there's a fine line we found between, if, if, you, if you start messing with the eyes on the robots in a certain way, it becomes like a Pixar movie and they become quite cartoony and, and lovable. And it felt wrong for our movie. and But then if you reduce, if you get rid of the eyes or with lenses on, a, on one of these things, it would look like it wasn't alive. And so somewhere there was a sweet spot in the middle where, and we found it was mainly making things asymmetrical, like never having two, the second you had two circles for eyes, it felt goofy. So you'd like either reduce one of the eyes till it was tiny. So it felt like a bit deformed or you'd completely remove it. And then it started getting interesting and being more like a little bit more alien less humanoid um yeah it was lots of
0: little tricks. The, which begs the question michael when you are coming to animate these things like i know i've spoken many years to ilm about creatures and they'll be like all oh, this backstory oh well is it a predator or is it not and if it's a predator its eyes are going to be close together so it's got you know like binocular vision and it can judge distances and there's always for the creature work for the animators a lot of backstory on creatures none of that applies when it's a robot because it didn't evolve like that. And then secondly, you have to get quite sort of meaningful emotion out of these praying mantis, as Gareth described them, kind of faces. Like, could you just discuss that process of actually getting a performance out of them? Again, talking about those simulants that aren't the sort of human faces.
3: Sure. Um, Well, I think that there was some thought that was put into it, in terms of just like trying to tie in the emotions with the mechanics that were going on. And and that was something that we tapped in very early on was when we were doing this animation of like the ring spinning, um, we, we broke it down to about four different emotional states of being like sad to all the way up to being excited. Um, and then what would it look like if it was very neutral and like interfacing with tech? And so then it was just a matter of kind of casting the shots and trying to find those beats throughout um, the movie where we could apply those emotions. So, you know, I think that there was, it, it wasn't just a matter of let's just make these rings spin. Um, we were very conscious of the performances and how we could tie in uh, the mechanics to that.
0: But I mean, like away from the spinning rings and the neck sections, which I'll come back to like, um, well, let's use that. So I, I when I was at Seagraph, I saw the um, new Asia bridge sequence, right. And the, Maybe you want to start this discussion, Gareth, but the thing that really struck me about that that was just really standout is when the robot that's not a main character uh, is targeted. He runs towards a family of humans, stops, and we read as the audience that if he goes in, he is going to possibly bring the hail of uh, fire down on that family. So he stands out from, of course, um, in inverted commas, dies. And, Gareth, for me, like that was... like a really remarkable little moment because I, it just started firing in my head. Well, hang on, like what's his relationship to those humans? And then what's his kind of like emotional thing. And all of that is being portrayed by this very non-human faced robotic actor. I mean, I know that you're picking them and not telling the actors that they were going to be robots, but nevertheless, the actual robot that I see on screen has to convey that emotion. That was a particular, so that's
4: like our hero robot in the movie, really. And so that was played by Amma, who played two other characters in the film as well, and did an amazing job. And it was late in the process that we decided to make him a full robot. And instead of going, okay, we're going to design our best robot, let's try and sit down and do this. Instead, we designed seven different robots, and the one that we looked at them and felt was the coolest, that's the one we gave to Amma's character. But... The problem we found is the coolest one in a two D design, when starting to be made into three D, didn't look as good, and and there was a lot of like if you had a little league board, a best looking robot head, during the process up, up to finaling like the the um the asset, that league kept changing every day. Like the one that looked coolest, like you'd suddenly turn it to the sides like a Rubik's cube. You think you've solved it, and then you rotate it and go, oh my god, it doesn't look good, does it? And it'd be very such a tricky balancing act and we would then have to paint We would do little sketches over it rotated it from the side and try and fix it and and so in the end that character in the movie is called Sekon um we called him Sartre the whole time we were filming um but um that essentially that that became my favorite looking robot and and like Michael can speak to this a lot better but um I think one of the things that was really important in terms of the emotion of that performance is that we did try to keep all of Amma's, um decisions, like all his eye darts, all his thoughts, and 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 it was all based off of an underlying performance, don't you think, Michael?
3: Yes, yeah. yeah, very much so. And um, that also applied to all of our other simulant work. You know, we we did pay attention to the plate, to the performers, um, you know, just a little micro movements that we were making, and we did incorporate that into our animated
0: performance. But so, and I, Jay, maybe you can speak to this. But like for me, yeah. it was just remarkable. Here's a guy who stops, and and I am reading on the robot's face in adverted commas, a thought process of should I go forward and save myself? Should I not? I'm not going right. to do it. I'm going to sacrifice all of this subtext. And if you sort of said to me on paper that you want to get that out, I'd be like, well, you're just not going to well, get that without some. I think mean, there's exposition. a couple.
5: Of, there's a couple of things that are kind of lucky coincidences that when you have an actor that thinks he's going to be in the movie. His performance is what he thinks is going to be in the movie. So it's right. He's, he's acting as a human in that when it was shot. And then, so after the fact, we have, we have like this great, um, we have these great touchstones to, to connect to. And then as we were putting that together, we addition different movements and the little eyes. And we created like a lens system and, and some other stuff on the inside of the eye. So you could catch, you could, you could see the eye darts and things like that. We, i remember we turned that up in terms of its visibility and the and they sort of the jaw movements and no one can see my my hands but um there's like a little almost like a crab-like kind of thing going on there so there it was really just trying to find what we could pull out of the performance that we could translate into our our um our satra bot right that's how we were calling it during production and then it was uh you know trying to Show those to Gareth and seeing
0: if that worked for him. That was sort of the thought. So Andrew, you wouldn't have known that that was going to be a full robot shot, But in the same sequence, that great bridge sequence, you would have known that you were going to put in the um what i I affectionately was referring to as the trash can robot, but um I should be saying uh, g thirteen and G fourteen, right? but yeah. you would you'd have known that they were going to be fully digital, right?
2: That's right, yes. so the um the stunt uh, guys that were performing, we'd attached um, a five foot pole uh, to their bag um, in order. We knew that it was going to be at least, I think it was like nine to 10 feet tall. Um, from the boards, that it was clearly considerably larger than a human. Um, so we added that to um, their back in order for Gareth's framing. Um, and so if, if he was operating or for the drone um, and also for sort of hand positions for Alfie, that that would all be um, correct in frame so that when he knelt down um, at that moment, when um, Alfie confronts him on the bridge, she's able to place her hand on in the correct position, which would be um, uh, would be his head. And then also for those same characters that, that performed running and uh, reacting to the bullet hits, um, we put um, just pink um, tape um, just to the joints um, for his arms and around his hip and knees um, in order to just have some semblance of um, being able to track just their motion and their running gait and then hopefully be able to translate that over to the uh, digital character um, once it got into animation.
0: Gareth, yeah, was there at some right. point that...
5: Uh, sorry. <laughs> No, it's just this is where I tell tell Andrew I break his heart and tell him that we replaced all of those things wholesale. That we had our own run cycle that I was in no way connected to to that that actors' movements. I, mean, I didn't vet this with him at all. Reference is bre-
0: always good, right, Andrew?
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean reference, the reference, yeah. but I, I'm breaking his heart in this moment.
2: Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. We stopped sorry. him and retaped at times if it felt like a piece of tape was coming off because I was like I can't let I the boys know. down. But yeah. Getting um, the run cycle, getting the run cycle right for that bomb droid was
4: really hard, because yeah. it, it was it looked great from the side profile. Like there's some shots where the camera we're on like a drone tracking along the bridge, and you see the side yeah. running, and it looked fantastic every time. But from the front, it, it ended up being nearly comical at the very beginning, where it was like because it, it has the, it naturally has the the gait and movement of a like a mascot from an NFL game or something like it's really clumsy to run in that thing. If we really had that for real, it'd be a nightmare. And and Michael, you can explain, but it was, it was, I feel like that was one of the harder bits of animation on the movie to some extent.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And hats off to Chris Potter, um, my, the co-animation supervisor, uh, for, uh, that robot in particular. Um, but you're right. you, you want to strike the um, the note of the what the movie is trying to say, the story, and um, you certainly did not want it to be comical at all. Um, so there was a lot of back and forth with that one uh, to get the tone just right.
0: It was a little whimsical, though. I mean, it was serious, but it was like a crowd-pleasing moment.
4: Yeah, it's like dark comedy, but I know in one of the test, like friends and family screenings we had early on, it got a massive laugh at one point. Like, and Like it was one of the funniest moments of the movie. <laughs> And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and so I put extra pressure on ILM. We had to kind of figure out how to make this front animation work. And they they got there in the end, but it was it's so hard because it's naturally like you do a design that looks cool, and you don't think about the animation, and then suddenly you're having to, you know, worry about the animation. And ideally, we would have gone back and forth to the design, like animated it, gone back to design, made some adjustments, but we just weren't in that world. We'd already built the asset. It was time was, you know, against us and yeah, to kind of like it evolved
5: also. Bit. Like in terms of our design, we we were a little bit more gorilla at one point, a little bit sort of yeah. you know taller at one point. Yeah,
0: was it conceived at any point as being a dog? Because you originally had the idea from the sort of dog yeah. type robot it, right? it
4: was a. It was never a dog in the in this film, but it was a dog in my head, right? um A long time ago, I wanted to do bomb dogs. Um, actually, did want to do that in the Star Wars movie. And uh, uh, it was not able to happen. And so um, I was like, kept it in my pocket for another film. So they turned up here.
0: Yeah. Well, I I think it worked brilliantly well. The whole sequence works extraordinarily well at like so many levels. Um, But also, wasn't that one of the first sequence? There was some story about you seeing that because you don't like watching your own work cut. But this was one of the first things that you saw cut, Gareth. Is that right? And was that with or without FX?
4: Yeah that was with zero obviously that was during when we were shooting the movie basically the studio wanted to watch some scenes and I hadn't seen anything cut together I was so busy making the film and so the uh, so Joe Walker who was at, who was editing the whole assembly of the movie was like hey the studio are going to come over are you okay um, they're going to want to watch something watch like show them. I think I'm going to show them the tank battle section and so he had to send it to me so I could just watch it and I hate watching Assemblies. It's suicidal uh, to sit and watch the film for the first time because you, you, what you thought you got, you didn't get, you know, and all sorts of things. And so, but I do remember clapping out loud in my hotel room after the first um, bomb had blown up, and then it just cuts to us and Jenny as she turns around and says "G14," and they go and they go and do it, and you realise, oh my god, they're not going to stop, and this is going to be horrific. And I, I just got such a kick out of that moment. And, uh, and, and it felt like, and weirdly, we didn't have any music in that whole section. There's like 15 minutes of no music, which is a tribute to the sound design and, you know, how much the, uh, the VFX are keeping your attention. Like it's just pure, you know, atmospherics and, you know, no, not leaning into music to generate emotions and stuff.
0: Look, just as a shout out, and I normally never do this, but you did another podcast with the sound design guys and Dolby um, did it. And it was just such a cracking uh, podcast. If anyone's interested in the sound design, you should definitely let Gareth and the the sound mixers and the sound editors uh, just had a tremendous breakdown of the the sound. And I saw the film again after I heard that and uh, tried to just listen to the sound, which is hard, but there is, which brings me to an interesting point actually in that discussion, you you referred in in the audio, you referred a lot to this idea of like going against what was the obvious and sensible filmmaking thing to do next, Yeah, that you would sort of or in the audio terms, good examples at the beginning, there's an explosion, you cut to like near silence just for the scene on the beach as a kind of memory and and it's a very different sound solution. I'm wondering, obviously you approached the VFX from a production point of view in an unusual way. But do you have similar examples of, Feeling like I wanted to treat the visuals differently than what was expected? Um, I think the main thing, yeah, I think probably where that happens the most in the movie,
4: the more uh, guerrilla stuff. Like where I got really excited was when we would shoot like a family or, you know, like in in a, you know, in the Nepalese village in the Himalayas or something. And they're like, you know, some old lady is like, um, like handing a candy bar to a kid and you get this real naturalistic, beautiful moment. And all I'm thinking the whole time I'm filming it is, oh my God, if we can make this woman a robot, I've never seen this in a movie before. And it's like, you, because you're, in theory, the price tag on turning someone into a robot, I don't know what it would be, but it's in probably, it's in the thousands and thousands, right? And so the idea of throwing that away or not making it front and center or this heroic kind of action-based moment but this more sort of Terence Maliki thing, um, where someone is like half asleep on a boat or kind of just walking with a child down a road, whatever it may be, like that's what got really exciting when 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 we sort of did visual effects to those sort of shots, because it's not it's that's it's sort of really not what these blockbusters, if you want to call it that, do. Like it's not how you're supposed to behave making this kind of movie. And I think it lands harder too because of it
5: because it doesn't feel that they don't feel like framed shots to serve like exclusively for the story. And they feel like they're, they feel much more naturalistic to me. I think that's the point you're making. Yeah.
4: Yeah. But there's just, there's just something that's so documentary-esque about it. Like it's and not set up and the people on actors and it's not contrived moment. And then you stick a science fiction in there and it, and it gets very exciting, like that's kind of where I would feel like we were doing something different whenever we did that kind of thing. And we do that also with the the world building, if you want to call it that, um, like the distant scale of the, you know, these mega structures and stuff that we would just chuck in the middle of shots. And the whole point of that was was that if you really went into the future and filmed a movie and then came back, to today to edit it, you'd sit and watch all that footage and you'd be full of questions where you'd go, what is that building? Who are those people? What's that vehicle doing? And you shouldn't have the answers to them because if it really is the future, you you wouldn't have a clue about half of it. And so it was really important the whole time that there was stuff within the frame that I couldn't justify. Like I couldn't I could give you my best guess. Like I think that might be um helping the atmosphere recycle or whatever, but I didn't know. And and I find that exciting personally, like that's probably like the strength of Star Wars is all these details everywhere that all feel like they have their own storyline or, you know, some other movie that could exist about that one character that walks past. Um, and, and trying to infect the film as much as possible with just random details that don't have to constantly make sense. And you get, and this is the thing you get, and I'll be interested in what you guys think, but you get into a lot of questions about logic, just like when you're shooting a film, actors will come up to you and they'll ask you about their backstory um, and the whole like everything about the this, you know, the scene and how it led up to this moment. When you do visual effects, I feel like the VFX team have a million questions about what is this vehicle, what is it trying to do, and the rationale of it and and how does it connect, what does it normally um what does it land? You know, what's it? And I'm always of the attitude of if you If you make it look good, the logic will follow. Like you'll then invent reasons why it does what it does, rather than starting with the logic and then making the design fit the logic. It's more like make a great design, and then 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 fit the logic to that rather than the other way around. I think that's for me that's a better version. But don't you? I mean, I know we had a million conversations about logic and.
0: But Andrew, that would have been with you'd have been on set at the front of that, right? Trying to actually determine what the heck I had to pay attention to, given that the i mean not normally on a call sheet you'd be like we've got a big shot today i need to pay attention this we just got some pickups not so much but in your case right. the pickup could be the big shot effectively if that makes sense
2: uh, yeah for sure and I mean, one thing that was super helpful is that at, uh, each morning at breakfast gareth and Oren and uh, myself and the first ad would look at boards uh, for the main action sequences we would go through the shot list and gareth would talk about you know what it what he imagined seeing or how he imagined that, that scene working, which was a great opportunity for me to you know, say, okay, I'm, I definitely need to get a clean plate of there, or I'm going to need a moment to shoot a, a HDRI. Um, but in those initial days, uh, the first few days of the shoot, I remember sort of after certain takes, when Gareth was free and available and wasn't engaged in something else, I might ask like, okay, so um, do you imagine they're going to be robots or, or what do you see there? Um, and, um often sort of Gareth would be like, I don't know, we'll we'll figure that out later. So it had to be for me like a trust fall of okay, we will figure that out later, capture as much information as I can, take as much, you know, sort of reference photography and measurements, um, and just sort of like have a toolkit that I can I can bring back. Because yeah, we didn't really know there was certain sort of the foundation was there for certain things, like there were boards where you knew, okay, there's going to be a structure. Often Gareth would frame when we were in the village when um, uh, the Marines come in uh, when they they uh, that that moment where they find Maya. Um, Gareth was framing um, sort of for for some monks, but then he panned up. Um, you know, and he was obviously imagining um, sort of craft going over, and and a lot of that was in Gareth's mind. Like he knew, okay, these things are going to need to be there. So that helps a lot. Like having the boards or having those conversations and seeing the um, the, the planning that Gareth had for it. Um, so yeah, it was a mixture of really not knowing and just trying to capture as much info, and then trying to fill in. Because the further we went along, the more um, the, the deeper we got into the shoot, the more you start to realize, okay there's probably going to be robots here, there's going to be a structure there. Um, so that helps along with the side conversations we'd have about what Gareth saw was planning.
0: And Jay, you'd need to solve as a visual effects supervisor, something sitting in a shot, like obviously, famously now those that uh, bridge sequence had, you know, the word tank over the where the tank was coming in, right? So you have yeah. to solve that problem of like, oh, does it look like it's actually there? That's like, what sort of renderer i'm using and making sure that yeah. i've got hdr but but then there's also this other thing which is it needs to culturally kind of make sense in the sense that you can't have tech that looks like it's from a different sort of world of tech right like things have to have some even if and if it's not articulated by James or Gareth in terms of uh art direction but they still have to feel like they're of the of the world and you've got this distant past distant future kind of thing going on and you have Got this Asian tech, but that isn't the one country. There isn't the one spot. You, there's a lot to manage that beyond just making a shot sit technically in.
5: Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I will say this: there there is sort of, I would say that that a lot of the success and the visual effects are are really due to James and Gareth and their in their tight communication because we we'll, it's a little bit the process of we get something on its feet. We'd place it. We'd do a little paint over. We'd go, you know, bring it up a little bit more in effects. We'd change the camera. We'd get a moving camera in there. We'd say, "Oh, it's mostly working. Let's let's work on this. Let's add some graphics there." So there's a there's a lot of a I would it felt like a very fluid process. At least I'm I'm hoping it felt that way to you, Gareth. That we were able to just sort of iterate and and bring things up and and elevate our our um, story beats. Um, as we're moving forward to make sure that we
4: all are headed in the in the right place, I think one of the things, and I felt like we were doing this um was that you know you've got a limited if you do the math, you've got a limited amount of resources per shot. Um, so you can't just go forever just you know, iterating and iterating. you've got that you've got to try and get this bull'seye within this very specific amount of time and 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 you know resources. and And so what we always said, or a little rule we developed was like a rule of thirds. And it was whatever your resources are, I don't know if you've got like, you know, three people on it for three weeks, or you've got one person on it for a day, you know, whatever it is, divide it into three and show us it when it's a third of the way through. So we can kind of like, you know, uh, like on a sort of bigger scale, like more of a macro view kind of you know course correct anything that's not quite the right idea and then again show us it again when it's two-thirds of the way through and and then you know one last the last chance saloon kind of version and we tried to stick to this it wasn't always perfect and we would sometimes not but that kind of basic of like please don't show us when it's nearly like 95% of the resources are spent you know and there's a kind of ta-da moment with which I think with a lot of filmmakers it feels like you know, there's the, the VFX companies tend to want to do that because if you show it half done, if they haven't got a visual effects background, you can get they can freak out about how crude it looks because it's like, no, 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 it's just the blocking or the animation. You know, don't worry about the fact it looks like a box or whatever. And and so, didn't you think that helped a lot, Jay? That kind yeah, of yeah, I was going to
5: say that more than other filmmakers that I've worked with, you were inside the TP in terms of seeing the. Very rough scaffolding, and so you would see shots really early, like as soon as it was on its feet, we would show you something. As soon as there was like a, like when we had rough models or rough animation, or just just to to get our our arms around sort of what the, the the choreography of the shot, which is not ridiculously different from what we would do normally, but you got to see the the least polished version. And then the I think I think at one point you sort of called it your your maybe it wasn't your words, maybe it was my, my, I'm going to put this on you, the sort of the vomit pass where you got like all your feedback out at once of like everything you wanted out of it. Then we would go away for a while and try to get like 80% of that. And then you get another crack at it. And that was, I mean, that was huge in terms of maximizing our ability to um, make massive shots and go really quickly and um, bring up the whole movie. And it definitely, the movie plays much bigger, than the number of hours, I think not just because of that process, but I think also because of um, a number of Gareth's choices in terms of like having a cut together and then doing a pass afterwards and picking which people are going to be robots and which are going to be simulants. And which, you know, like the checkpoint is one of the ones I always point to because not every single shot in that sequence, did we do the environment work? You know, we did it in the, and obviously in the wide and the reverse, but we don't have it in like all of the, all of the shots where you're you're looking outside, where the kids are inside, looking out um, at the uh, the police checkpoint person. So we're you know we're cheating where wherever we can. I, I feel like that's the you know sort of a spider.
0: Uh, it also a, felt um, like you just we're, weren't worrying about things that didn't matter. Like I love in the back of the beach shot at night that we were talking about earlier. That there was, you didn't shut the beach down. That there were just some bars down the end yep. of the beach that were like. And like, who cares, right? If you're looking at that, you're just looking at the wrong thing. But you can spend a lot of money just adjusting a leaf on a tree when that's not what matters. But anyway, and, I really and want that's to get- the
5: cure, because they adjusting that leaf on the tree. I mean, costs the same as painting out, you know, the back of someone's head. Effectively, you get you get into those those same problems, and that's ultimately that's if if I'm gonna this is maybe the right venue to complain about it. But the one of the great crimes and visual effects is that there's a tremendous amount of money that goes into things that people aren't paying attention to are not significant in their movie. Uh, and I don't feel like that's that's something that Gareth worries about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's absolutely true. And I think that uh, <clears throat> I think that there's something about what, what do I need to see for this story? And what I've always liked, and look, you did the same thing on Godzilla and stuff. It's like, you don't do a shot, Gareth, where it's where the intent of your shot is for me as the viewer to say, wow, I wonder how they did that. Because for me, the second I'm sitting in the audience going, I wonder how they did that, I'm no longer in the story. I'm thinking about the filmmaking process, right? And so showing off with an impossible move or a ridiculously complicated thing for just the benefit of having someone say, I couldn't see how they could do that, feels like kind of, one-upmanship, which if you've got several hundred million dollars to burn, it's probably not the worst thing in the world, but it's certainly not a good thing to do if you don't have several hundred million dollars to burn.
4: I think one of the things we did as well that I would definitely do again that was very useful was that, I mean, there's probably an exception or two to this, but we pretty much for every VFX shot in the movie, there was a plate. So there was a piece of footage that was the basis of that shot. It was never like, Oh, here's a you know a seventy percent green screen thing, and we've shot a guy in the foreground, or or here's a storyboard. Figure it out. It was always here's some footage that is the basis of this, I and mean, even if you end up replacing nearly everything, which wasn't very often, um, it 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 has all the limitations and all the characteristics of all the other footage in the movie. Um, like, it's one of my gripes is when things look pre busy where suddenly the camera's doing things and the vocabulary of the movie is nothing like the drama of the film. It just suddenly becomes this whiz bang moment in the VFX of it all. And um, and so like we tried to shoot, even when we didn't have any footage at all, we would get stock footage, you know, or if, if there was like, for instance, the Nomad, which is the big space station at the end of the film, it was nearly impossible to have footage or basic, you know, a basis of, plate for that so ilm were really good in that they created this virtual kind of volume shoot day for me where i went up and they had the whole model in 3d space and in virtual kind of reality kind of way i mean you can speak to it better jay but yeah play around and shoot this thing right yeah that was a that was our virtual camera setup and so what
5: I I, I joke with Gareth that he now has his own. Um, We now have Gareth tools, uh, Gareth tool set on the stage for that, for uh, when he can operate it basically like a, like you're operating a a virtual camera over a model. And so that was those kind of like all those elaborate camera moves and it's all stuff that's based in his filmmaking language. I'm even doing some of the moves like sort of below frame. Um, But yeah, the, I think it's important to do that, you know, to, to make it consistent and just to back to what Gareth was saying earlier, there's even places inside the nomad, which started with, I don't know, Andrew, if it was a train station or the Bangkok airport or malls. Yeah. yeah, Where we could keep some of the, keeping the ground plane and keeping some of the walls. There's so many, there's so many things that, you know, that help ground you as a visual effects artist that when you start with something, the worst thing you can ever do is start with nothing. Because they're, it's all up for grabs. And even the things that you think you're correct on and the texturing and the lighting, it may not exactly work that way. And I find, and it's something that we talked about a bunch, is this sort of thing that happens when you start with a third of the frame, even if it's you know the ground, you get into this place where if you're really good, you're matching those cues well enough that it's hard to find where one thing ends and the other begins. And then at that point, you're, you, your mind can't kind of figure out the magic trick and you sort of accept it as real.
0: Yareth, how'd you find using the stagecraft? Because you used that on Nomad, right? Where...
4: Yeah, we used it for two um environments. There was the biosphere, so like the farm kind of, you know, green grass area in uh, at the very end of the movie, and and the escape pod bay. Um, I found it really, really interesting. It's I would I'm more interested in someone watching the movie and pressing a like pressing a button when they think they see the most expensive set in the third act, because we mixed and matched the process in, in like in really great ways. But I think, I honestly think we couldn't have done the biosphere any other way. Like it was, it was very hard to have all that foliage and, and the depth of field and, you know, the kind of organic camera moves that were going on here and there that that would have been pretty difficult. I think, and and green screen and other ways but it's 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 just I don't think it replaces everything it's like it's it's a you know it's it's kind of like in the pizza slices of filmmaking depends on the filmmaker but it's definitely like a slice or two or more you know like it should be in there in the arsenal of things you can use to make a movie but you know for me I definitely got a kick out of and would definitely do it again using real locations. It was, it was, you uh, yeah, I think it was one of the strengths of the film.
0: I'd like to take the time we have remaining to talk about the animation and work on the hero main actors. Cause I've kind of been building up to this, by the way, Alison Janning, just brilliant casting. I mean, God, I loved her in West Wing. I adored her ever. When I you had me the second I heard she was in the film, right? But if I can focus in on uh, John David Washington's character and and uh and Alfie so uh let's start with um you call him JD right yeah 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 so so obviously you have to lose limbs on a character and that's always really hard to do not least of which because um there's physics attached to the weight of that limb that is inherent in the body and obviously, if you don't have the limb there, that weight wouldn't be pulling down on my shoulder or whatever it is. How how did you go about sh- approaching those shots and and you know pulling them off basically?
4: I mean, Andrew, do you wanna?
2: Yeah, on set, um, JD would and he, he was sort of, I mean, he's got great physical control. Um, he would uh have his arm behind his back, the 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 limb that got blown off. Um, I don't think we ever attached it or restricted it we might have um experimented with that but it was sort of interfered um but he would normally just have it sort of tight behind his back up so he would have his right hand up by his shoulder blade um to sort of force himself to um you know work with just his 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 operational hand um and uh wetter had a um they had a couple of different um prosthetic arms there was one incredibly realistic um arm that was just amazing to see um but then they they also had an, a, another addition which was uh there was a elastic strap that went across his chest um and then there was a shoulder piece and so we were able to use that for for some shots where you could see where the mechanics would be so the mechanics essentially were um sort of a, an elasticated portion that were, was on his bicep um and at, at other times we would put tape as tracking markers over his bicep uh, so that when he was in the water or moving around, at least we would know, OK, we're losing from sort of like his his bicep down, but that uh, there's something to be able to track and add the the mechanics on. So uh, a mixture of um, solutions for how to figure out where the prosthetic arm should be. But it really helped just from the starting point of JD being willing to, you know, um, sit on his leg when he's on the bed um, to help us out or just walk around and, and and act with one arm behind his one arm behind his back.
0: Which brings us to Madeline or to Alfie and also Ken's character, a bunch of the characters where they've got a proper human face and neck. And I'd like to start there if I could, Gareth, because I found it super fascinating. Uh, I've heard you speak about this, uh, the fact that the neck was significant in making that work. Because almost everybody thinks of the face as the hockey mask, right? Like the kind of sans ears, sans neck kind of thing. And you said that keeping the neck there made a significant difference to you from a performance point of view from a directorial point of view
4: yeah i mean essentially when we were designing it james klein um we kind of created a very chromey mechy skull and neck and then put like in photoshop basically had the actor's skin over the top and would just use frames from the film and then sit there and essentially just experiment with just deleting that layer of skin and just trying like you know, dozens of permutations of like, what if we remove this piece or what if we remove that piece and like what to expose from the skin to the to the mechanics underneath. And we found that it wasn't really like, oh, you can do anything you want. You sort of had to follow the forms of the human head, like obviously the curving of the skull and the fact we were removing ears I meant you had to have a circular shape, you know, kind of flowing around where the ear would have gone, things like that. And And we tried, you know, because there's so many, films that have been done like this we tried the whole you know face mask thing and and it just didn't feel it felt like you're in uncanny valley and i think for all the films that had gone before us that about robots and ai that was a good thing for those movies because you're supposed to look at those ai in those films and be slightly slightly rejected slightly kind of unnerved by it and we didn't want that at all we had to fall in love with this kid and so But we found that if we had kept the throat in the skin that goes from the head down to the body and then it just disappears under the, you know, under the costume, um, your brain somehow it doesn't feel decapitated as a person. And your brain kind of could hug that kid, you know, and it not be weird. And so so this that was just things we found out. They weren't like clever thoughts. They were just through a lot of trial and error. It, 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 you find yourself having an emotional reaction to an image, and and you don't necessarily understand why, but it it you can't help it, and and you're just kind of experimenting until you find the right choice.
0: But you said in another interview that when you first got the first of such shots through, they were obviously the easiest shots because they're the ones that come off first, and they were oh, front-on yeah. shots where you just kind of lost the ears, and then you kind of freaked out a bit. You said, yeah, no, I
4: mean honestly, it was like. Because everyone does the easiest shots first, right? It's the first things oh. you see are the VFX that like you can just quickly do. And so for us, that was these shots where you basically remove Alfie's ears. And there's a little bit of there's a little bit of chrome or something on the edges of the neck and a little bit of chrome right on the back of the skull, but you can hardly tell. And so one by one, all these VFX shots were coming in that looked like if you didn't know anything, you just showed your grandma, she wouldn't know it was a film about robots and and it started to really panic me and god bless ILM because i had a bit of a panic freakout moment and they they rose to the challenge because i was like we i i there was this particular section on the bridge and i just felt like oh my god this robot movie has no robots in it and there was like a big deep breath and i felt the seismic movement of san francisco and then they suddenly were like okay well what if we made the following people robots and God bless them. They went and added a load more robots to that section. Cause I was starting to get really worried about it.
5: You know, it's funny, Gareth, but I, I, I think it was, maybe it was with my wife. I said, how many, how many robots do you think are in this movie? She goes, there's robots everywhere. And like, and that's the, that's the thing that's like the big, I was like, Oh my God, thank you for saying that. That was the thing that scared me as well. I was like, Oh man, did we, did we just do, are there not enough robots? Do we need to go back for another, another scoop of robots? But I think we landed in a great place. About yeah, there's a Alfie, ton. You know, yeah, there's a ton of robots. That's the per- I mean that's the thing that's the, the funny part is, and I don't know if there
0: are a ton of robots, but there's at least the perception. There's, there's, feeling- there's a ton of robots in this film in the same way that you thought there was tons of footage of the Terminator in the Terminator films, but there was like yeah, minutes, seconds. Yeah. For sure.
5: The on on Alfie, the you know, it's funny because we did we did have like a sort of a reboot along the way. And there were a couple of missteps that I think we sort of collectively took about sort of where, like the size of her head geometry and sort of how it stuck out and trying to get away from. I think there was at one point you called it like the Beats headphones version of Alfie's head. Yeah. Yeah. But the, um, uh, yeah. So I mean, I think that was really important to get right for sure. I can't imagine it any other way at this point. But. I think the so, other thing
4: that was in, the, the reason it looks like there's loads of robots, and there probably isn't as many as you think is because we did it reverse engineered who was going to be a robot and i e like not put tracking markers on every background or extra or artist or whatever and And so what happens is when we had edited the film, you can watch the movie, and wherever you, wherever your eye naturally went, we made that person a robot. so as like the scenes are like the shots are cutting together. If you found you looked at that woman as she ran past, it was like she's going to be a robot, and so you think you're seeing loads of them, but really it's just it's only where your eye goes that we're putting them, um, and so that that was, you know, I think that paid dividends working like that, yeah. and we're and
5: we're cheating again. Like there's the the um, when the after the um, uh, JD or, or Joshua comes back or gets captured on the beach there with the insurgent ship. The wide shots don't have any robots or very few, or I don't think they have any simulants either. But then we pick them up and we add robots in sort of the background and when it's closer. So it's really, again, it's what are you tracking at that time?
0: Yeah. Michael, can we go back to you on the point you discussed earlier about the gears in the head? And I guess my thing here was I was fascinated by the gears in the head just from like there must be some logic to it. But then I was also thinking that, light of this discussion that Garrett had, had with the audio guys that you could have been whizzing those things in the back of the head on like one of Ken's shots or something. And I would have been really distracted by what's whizzing at the back of his head and just taking my eyes off his face. Right. I don't think that would have happened with uh, with Alfie because her performance is just so strong that your eyes are just magnetically stuck to her. But, but any character like that, it's a potentially huge distraction. And yet there's, you were saying that like different sort of emotional beats were being reflected in the animation?
3: Uh, Yes, that's true. Um, And I think I shared your same instinct uh, when I saw the first rough cut of the film. I thought, wow, this is going to be a very subtle movie. Um, You know, we don't want to do any distractions. And uh, to his credit, Gareth kept on pushing us. He said, you know, I want to see him spinning faster. And I think, um, well, I won't put words in Gareth's mouth, but I think what I came to understand was Gareth was looking at it from a couple steps down the line of like sound design and how he could enhance this, uh, this beat, you know, with low sound effects. So he wanted to make sure we got that right. Um, but going back to your point, yeah, that was just sort of a uh, a logistical sort of problem that we were trying to solve. Of we're gonna have hundreds of shots with this head mech and we wanna, we wanna make them unique, but we wanna have them have some sort of consistency to them. Um, And that was where we came up with sort of the emotional beats. Let's narrow that down to about four different moments. Then we'll start casting those shots. And I think that method going into it, we always knew like, well, that's probably going to get us about 75% of the way there. And then we're going to have to evaluate it from a shot by shot basis and see what we can do to enhance the scene.
0: Was it hard to to make those things read because they were... Back in the head, they're in shadow. Like it would be easy yeah. for those, just not even yeah, read.
5: That, it did. You know, it's funny when it comes to the the metal. It. it we tried to keep keep it all as as grounded as we could. We're using a number of different types of metal in there. And then we do a little bit of cheating occasionally. It was always really helpful when we had a kick from the from the opposite side frame or we had something sympathetic to the environment that would sort of highlight it. And we're always looking for opportunities to get a little bit of glint here. It's a lot of the same sort of stuff that we did do in Transformers movies and stuff and other things, find a little bit of a mirror kick or that kind of thing. Um, the, other, the other real challenge is that especially for someone who's older, like for Ken or for any of our our monk simulants, that the human body is incredibly elastic and it's, you know, it's like jelly. And so trying to, we had to anchor sort of portions of their head, either by reprojection or by re-rendering them. So they had an adjacency where the mech could anchor and then we built like little geometry for Alfie along the and, and the other characters along the, the neckline so that they had sort of a backing there because what we what we found was if you didn't do that it just felt like a it felt almost like a roto edge right that you just had this hard line but you didn't feel like there was anything back it so we built like this sort of physical structure that backs behind the neck and around the contours and then you know the the skin sort of rolls inside and then there's this little
4: metal channel all those sorts of things
0: I mean, heads I mean, to off give, to whoever was... Sorry, go
4: on. You know, I was going to say, to give credit to uh, the animators on all, all these shots, is that when we started this and we sort of tried to come up with some logic of what what the mechanics of the head, um, motor, you know, the motorized movement meant, and my my best analogy was like, if this was a, you know, a bunny rabbit, it's the ears, you know what I mean? Like the way you can use ears on a, on a a on a type of character to give emotional states, like like a uh uh-oh or hmm what's that and you know like shock reactions whatever it may be and like using using the speed of the and the and the direction to kind of imply that that kind of thought process and when we started I felt like you know we've got probably like a thousand of these shots at least to to get through and when we started we had very intense conversations about it and I was like oh no this is this going to be one of these things that's just going to grind the film to a halt but after that, I I maybe you'll correct me, but I don't really remember ever bouncing back a piece of animation based on the 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 head circle movement. Then maybe it was like if it was if it was Alfie doing one of her powers, it was like, can we see it go faster? Like, can we punch yeah. like somehow help that in the comp? But um but in terms of the actual animation choices, I think the guys just ran with it for the whole movie. Like everybody just kind of got it, and it was very little iteration on that.
0: Is that right, Michael? did they uh did did you guys just nail it
3: yeah i I think that uh after maybe a a few rounds of iteration at the very beginning i think we all got into a groove and um you know we were we were all uh, on the same page with uh how the performances should be
0: i mean that's how backstory should work right you should have a logic that makes sense that allows people to do their jobs um yeah i gotta say just as much as the animation was great, I also think your compass deserve credit because there's a shot where Alfie resuscitates effectively his mother and her mother, and um, and there's the the gears. I can see them through the hair, and it's beautifully lit. It's beautifully composed. It's just enough to make it because it's obviously an important plot point that you know an audience is like fully aware of what they're looking at, and yet it's not like, hey, I'm just gonna put my hair behind my ears so you can really see what's going on here. Yeah, those were tough. But there's a
5: cellophane bag too that that uh, that Maya's in, which is yeah. really challenging as well. Yeah. Uh, hats off to our London team who did that and, and Charmaine Chan, who's the supervisor on that on that uh, sequence. Yeah, Because you've raised this
0: question of internal logic, and I was going to skip this, but I got a beef I need to have solved, right? Gareth, you got to tell me, what the heck? I mean, I loved it to death and I think visually it was spectacular, but that downward, like, Targeting looking scanning thing that was coming out of Nomad, right? Like at the beginning, I was like, it's a targeting system, and then the missiles weren't going where it was going. And then at the end of the film, that appeared on a whole lot of places. And I'm like, I I love this effect when it goes over the trees. I thought some visual effects artist was just, you know, putting that on their showreel and mic dropping and walking away. But what was the logic? (laughs) Wow, we haven't got long enough on this podcast, (laughs) but it
4: was uh. The logic was, I actually, and this is, I'll do the 30 second version, you ready? Okay, yeah. At the end at the end of um, pre-production on Rogue One, me and a concept artist called Matt Olsop, I promised him that we would visit Area 51. We went, we sat in our cars, we saw strange things in the sky, and then a very strange thing, this big red square appeared in front of us. And we absolutely shat ourselves and tried to reverse and do an Austin Powers three point turn to drive away. And then as we were driving away on the mountains in front of us, this massive like laser grid was projected down onto the mountains and it, it scared the living daylights out of us. And I saw it twice and and we like, it was just one of these things where it's like, I've got to put that in a movie at some point. Um, we thought we were gonna get arrested. We thought all kinds, and we were sort of chased for about an hour and a half, not chased, but we were pers- followed for an hour and a half by guys with night vision in a car. Um, we'd had with all their lights off. It was very weird, uh, long story that normally takes wow. me an hour to tell. And so it's all based on that. <laughs> That's my fast way of avoiding all your logic problems and saying it's it's from Area 51. Okay, deal with it.
0: Okay. Just quickly, Jay, how did you pull that off? Because that was that all, th- I mean, I would have otherwise said if it hadn't been you guys doing this, I would have said you'd had to build all of that stuff digitally just so that you could get the the laser beam to you look build- like one went over all the...
5: Yeah, we, well, we did, we built for, for the beach, we, we built like sort of a targeting reticle and then we, you know, projected it from a, you know, orthographic camera onto the, onto the environment for the ports where it's climbing up, we replaced some elements of the geometry of the cliffs and things, or we would remodel something. So it would, it would undulate and cover the ground um where it gets really complicated is where we had to replace some some trees and things so it does sort of the right kind of breakup so you have to sort of recreate the environment to get it to climb over it um yeah it was a little and if sometimes it's pretty easy sometimes it's much more involved
0: well i'll, different, I'll take your solution yeah. for different shots I'll take your advice and get over it. And clearly this is one of those cases of something from the future that makes no sense to me in the present because, because it's uh, meant to be from the yeah, future, right? Yeah, I didn't get a chance to
4: ask them. I, w- I would have asked them uh, what was going <laughs> on, but we had to come back to 2023 to finish the film.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Well, guys, it's been so great uh, talking to you. There's so much more that we could discuss, but I really do appreciate everyone taking the time to uh, to go through it. I think the film looks spectacular and it is just a great film. Like it's good fun. I uh, It's moving. And uh, I think the acting, which we haven't really focused on, obviously on this podcast was off the dial good. Um, so I hope that's all, uh, you know, acknowledged and uh, uh, moving forward, uh, respected by those uh, organizations that do awards. Because it's um, great. It's really great. I have Thanks, to
5: Mark. Get, do a quick shout out to our other supervisors around the world, Ian Comley and Charmaine Chan in London, Dave Daly in Sydney, and Chris Potter in uh, other our, other animation soup in uh, London as well. So it's a can I do, a,
4: can I do a shout out to the other vendors as well? Can, course, uh, and and So to Mars, to Crafty Apes, to Atomic Arts, to Folks, to Finn, to Jellyfish, Outpost, MISC lecker vfx territory and vfx la wow
0: that's impressive and, and not uh not missing of course the sfx guys right because there was some really nice work from neil and his team as well yeah
4: yeah neil and jonathan bullock and gary yeah they did a stunning job yeah they had yeah we could do a whole podcast on their smoke machine
0: situation <laughs>
4: that would it be the like, uh
0: the motherfucking large smoke machine <laughs> yeah they called it the
4: the the giant motherfucker was the yeah. name for the, the large smoke machine that we took everywhere.
0: Right. Well, that for another time, that and the uh, the sex monkey. But uh, that's it <laughs> for now. And thanks so much for being with us, guys. Thank, Cheers you,
1: thank you, Cheers. Thank you. Well, big thanks to Jay, Andrew, Michael, and Gareth for taking the time to chat with us on the FX podcast. Certainly learned a few things here during this podcast that haven't read about online or heard in any other podcast. So thanks for taking the time to share those details with us. Well, that's it for this episode. For Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening.
0: Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.